Welcome to In Between. Once again, I'm uh, standing at the airport and uh, behind the closed doors because in India it's a case that people cannot enter the whole airport hall if they don't have a ticket. So it's always you have to say goodbye before the doors and then you go to, through the doors into the airport and that's when it really hits you that now you're on your own and on your way back into another life. And uh, every time I think like, shouldn't all of this goodbye and all of this just, shouldn't it get easier with time? And uh, somehow it never does. Again, a very teary goodbye was happening and uh, yeah, it's always emotionally very draining and very difficult especially if I uh, don't know when I'm gonna see people again and yeah also that whole resettling again in another life saying goodbye to one being getting ready to to adapt again to another context in another life and it's yeah it's draining sometimes and it's yeah it's sad and difficult but I'm so uh, also somehow grateful for airports and for flights because somehow you get some time to spend kind of in between in like nowhere land in a, where you are not there anymore and you have time to properly say goodbye like in your own mind but you're also not at your place of destination yet so you get some time to prepare and like in this neutral space of flying or airports some time and space to organize your thoughts and every time I'm so grateful for this because somehow I really needed to yeah, kind of get ready. Then I, I arrived at Zurich Airport like very early around 5 a.m. And uh, it's always strange. It's very interesting but very strange because everything is so normal. I know how everything works. I, uh, but at the same time, it's strange because I've just lived a completely different life for six weeks and now I'm back and, and everything is so, yeah, so normal. I know everything but still it's, yeah, it's always strange. I then took the train and I had to change trains somewhere <laughs> in the countryside and I was like standing on a platform and I remember that I had some thoughts which I would like to share with you and I even wrote them down later and because uh, so many times like I asked myself why can I not just have two lives? One here, one there, a circle of loved ones here and there happily experiencing both lives self-contained in their totality. Why this constant switching of places and phases, habits, the tears, the hellos, the goodbyes, the whole emotionality? But then I think, would I enjoy India as much if I had grown up there and saw things not as miracles and riddles to be understood and solved, but as daily life, mundane and inevitable? Would I enjoy Switzerland the same these days, if I wouldn't know that life comes in intervals, time is limited and days are somehow always counted. Is it human nature that can't have it any other way, that prefers the joy and bittersweet suffering of an existence in between over the elegance of a, of a life in simplicity? I was wondering all of that <laughs> as I waited on a railway platform in the countryside, watching the sky lighting up in pink and grey, the shadows of dark forests shining as if on fire. I watched my breath disappearing into the white clouds in the cold over me and my suitcase, banish into thin morning air 
just like I am about to dissolve again into this other reality, disappearing into the crowd of lives and fates over here as I reach one home by leaving another. Then I would like to share with you something I've read before I came here. In my last days, I started to read this book by William Dalrymple again. It's called Begum's Tux and an English Man, The Journals of Funny Parks. And uh, it's a book about this English lady who came to India in colonial times. And it's about all her impressions and how she sees India, how she grows close to India and learns the customs and is experiencing everything. And it's very interesting because it's like my beloved place or country and to see it and from another time from this very specific and interesting perspective I really really liked it and I found this one passage which I liked a lot and it made me feel oh I want to be like that I want to become like that and I read it to a few friends and they also had to laugh <laughs> and I uh, felt like sharing it with you it is this sheer joy, excitement and even liberation in travel that Funny Parks manages so well to communicate. In the same way, it is her wild, devil-may-care enthusiasm, insatiable curiosity and love of the country that immediately engages the reader and carries him or her with funny as she bumbles her way across India on her own, willfully dismissive of the dangers of dacoits or thugs or tigers, learning the sitar, inquiring about the intricacies of Hindu mythology, trying opium, taking down the recipes for scented tobacco, talking her way into harems, befriending Maharata princesses, and collecting Hindu statuary, fossils, butterflies, zoological speci specimens, preserved in spirits, Indian aphorisms and Persian proverbs. All with an unstoppable, gleeful excitement. Even when she dislikes a particular Indian costume, she often finds herself engaged intellectually. So I really think that she was a very exceptional woman and like the way she embraced Indian culture, learned the languages, learned to love the country and was like also very emancipated for a woman of her time, like traveling all alone through India and developing this love and understanding for the country I find it really fascinating and very inspiring and I would love to become like this. And uh, I also find it interesting because from that time, usually you read all this stuff, pride and prejudice kind of uh, way in which early English colonizers describe India, describe Indian people. And it's somehow nice to see that there is this other voice of other people who engaged with the country totally differently in the same time, although they were a minority for sure, but people who were not there to conquer the country, but to understand it and to learn from it. And yeah, to see this other side, hear this, hear this other voice. Yeah, I really found that fascinating because there were a couple of people who were, that by the time when yeah, India got independent, that were so Indianized that they were not drawn out of the country because they were wearing local clothes, they were speaking Hindi or Urdu, like uh, funny, and they were, uh, they really somehow, <laughs> yeah, took India in in a very different way. And yeah, reading an account like this, I really found it interesting, especially she has that also very <laughs> dry British humor sometimes, which yeah, I enjoy. Then I want to share uh, an experience which happened to me a few days ago. I was sitting on a 
lawn. There were some benches. Somewhere in Syria, and I was reading uh, some text for the university. And on the same lawn, there's like a kind of a community garden. And I noticed a group of uh, retired people uh, coming and starting to work in the garden. And uh, suddenly I heard a very interesting sound. And I was like looking up and it felt totally surreal because I saw these three very old women like walking in circles around the, around the garden and like singing in, in like three voices in three different tonalities singing uh, some very beautiful songs and like perfectly they didn't have any any notes to look on or any I don't know it seemed like as if they had done it for years maybe together or I don't know it seemed completely like a bit magical and they were like walking around and singing these beautiful songs and I was totally like captivated by it and as I left the place like I, I made this recording I thought that, oh no, now I'm back in Switzerland and Zurich where I know everything and things are not that this new and exciting and not so much input all the time. And then still some small things happen and they captivate you and they yeah, make you realize the special thing in a otherwise very known environment. And yeah, I was really grateful for this somehow. Yeah, it showed me there are still a lot of things to wonder about also here in Zurich. Then I want to talk about another text which I read the other week. And uh, I'm sorry, it's a bit a lot of text reading in this episode, but uh, I just felt it spoke to me so much that I felt like sharing it. And uh, it's a book. It's called uh, Verlernen Denkwege by Hannah Arendt. It's something like, I'm very bad at translating this, but something like unlearning, uh, Thinking Paths by Hannah Arendt, and it was written by Marie-Louise Knott in uh, 2013. And it's about Übersetzen, which in German means to translate, but it also means setting over, and they constantly play with this. Like that, uh, Hannah Arendt was a very uh, important intellectual, actually in uh, the social scientist. Uh, she is Jewish, and she, yeah, she flew to the US, basically, uh, very early and then had to yeah learn English she always wrote in German so now she had to start learning this new language and writing in this new language familiarizing herself with it and uh, yeah somehow it's also quite literally for this setting over by boat from Europe from your native place with your native language to this new America with this new language and everything where you have to translate all your feelings and the things you want to say and some things might not be translatable it taught the text talks about how she learned english and how she was writing in german and in english and in the beginning just translating but it thinks a lot about this translation and about this speaking several languages or working or thinking in several languages and somehow i felt that it relates a lot to my podcast which i do also in English and German, and somehow I feel like uh, what happens when I'm recording the same on the base, I don't even change the notes from English to German, when I'm recording on the basis of the same notes, still something very different happens in my thinking, in my narration, in my remembering, depending on if I do it in German or English. 
And uh, yeah, Hannah Arendt seems to be someone who has thought a lot about this same thing. She says that in her native language, she knows so many poems and novels and knows some of them by heart. And whenever she writes in her native language, there are so many implicit or explicit uh, quotes which she's making. There are so many voices which are kind of speaking, which she lets speak through her writing, like different voices which people with a German background would probably know. And uh, for example, she talks about the... A presentation to which she went, which had the topic how the German song Der Mond ist aufgegangen is completely intranslatable because, yeah, Der Mond ist aufgegangen means uh, the moon has risen and it's, yeah, this fairy tale kind of a song. And how for people, German native speakers, like it invokes all of these mental images of like a dark forest of fairy tales the whole landscape of fairy tales of like the clouds rising and dragons and the moon and elves and i don't know what and how it's very difficult to translate or even transfer this exact fairy tale landscape fairy tale world which people are reminded of by certain words and to translate that or like to have that also being translated in in english I so much like understand this problem because many times like I say things differently in English or in German or I make different examples to somehow create the feeling I want to create or say the things I want to say. And sometimes it's not possible to say the same thing in German to say it in the same way. It wouldn't invoke the same mental pictures and landscapes as it does in English or the other way around. And uh, in the book, they uh, compare different paragraphs of... Uh, Hannah Arendt's works because I think till the end of her career she kept writing in English and in German so and they compared these paragraphs and how they were written very differently both of them to invoke or make the exact make the reader feel the exact thing she wanted to feel and sometimes this needs different metaphors different I don't know just a different way of speaking and uh, for example Hannah Arendt once said that I allow myself to do or write things in German, which I would never do in English. And it's interesting that so many times I thought the exact same thing. Like that I sometimes say things in German or, yeah, allow myself things which I would never do in English. And of course, also the opposite. I think, and Hannah Arendt also says that, that a lot of it has to do that she has a different audience in mind while she's writing in English or German. Exactly the same with me. And uh, yeah, it's just a, totally different thinking landscape image landscape and yeah i found it very interesting that also these this text is only understandable for people who are used to speaking several languages quite well or working and writing in several languages because the only people probably like me who are in a similar situation could understand and like enjoy all the nuances that have been shown in the text when you compare these two paragraphs, like it's the same paragraph from the same book, once in German, once in English, and see how differently she wrote it. Yeah, I related so much to it because it's the same. Like when I when I talk, when I do my episodes in German, I think of the people I know who will listen to the podcast in German. And I think of home and my people at home. I sometimes explain maybe a little bit more. I talk a bit more informal, I feel sometimes. While in English, I think of a broader audience and I also have my social anthropological vocabulary is mostly used by me in English. So I'm so used to use that in English that in English, I think it comes in way more than in German. 
while uh, yes I probably speak a bit more academically in, in, in English and I address a probably totally different audience in my head and uh, I also feel sometimes that with English I'm a lot closer to to my memories somehow because a lot of my life world in India is yeah the things that happen they happen in English or they happen in Hindi or and somehow in English sometimes I remember details which I haven't remembered when I told the same thing in German just half an hour before <laughs> because somehow I'm kind of closer but again in German sometimes I have more of an outsider view and I notice things and make comparisons which I don't when I mean when I speak about it in English so a lot of people have told me like why are you why are you doing so much effort to produce the same thing twice in two languages but somehow I also really like it what it does to my to my thinking my remembering my also a nice translation challenge but also interesting how it gives me access to my thoughts and my memories in very different ways just by changing the language in which I narrate the things I want to narrate and yeah, I really enjoy that and this text just resonated so much with me by yeah pointing out so many of the points so many things which I've been thinking about and reflecting on and was struggling with and yeah I just wanted to share this thing with you. One thing which I always notice when I'm coming back is uh, I always get woken up by the church bells. I live very close to a church and usually I don't even hear them anymore because I'm so used to it. But whenever I've been gone for a while and I come back, I hear them, they wake me up again. And uh, yeah, it takes a few weeks till they fade in the background again and don't wake me up anymore. And it's also interesting whenever I make voice messages uh, to Indian friends and they hear the church bells in the background, which I don't even notice that they were there. They are like, oh, it's so beautiful, the church bells. And it's, yeah, it's kind of funny. Another thing I always realize when I'm coming back is suddenly wherever I go, I'm like the the expert on India and people feel like whatever they always wanted to know about India, they can now shoot and ask me. And sometimes it's really difficult and it's a very strange and but also slightly funny role in which I get pushed all the time and Many times I feel like I can't, like, I don't have answers to all of your questions. I mean, I have some, especially related to the topics I've done research on or the topics I've been in major contact with, but not all of it. Like, I'm not a general expert on India, but it's funny how people push me in that role. Yeah, then I want to make a very brief catch up about the topic. I'll talk about it longer in the next episode, but... Uh, I went to see my supervisor and I presented him the three topics I had left and uh, we commonly somehow already in the preparation for that meeting but also during the talk in the meeting it somehow crystallized itself that uh, I'm going to work on the intercultural couples not sure yet if I'm going to call them intercultural couples I don't think so but let's say about these intermarriages because it touches upon most of the topics which I'm really interested in and also yeah I think one just has to start somewhere and it also touches upon this in-betweenness which I'm so interested in and yeah I'm just now starting I can still change if I've started reading the literature and I hate it so that's the plan for the moment just to start reading up on it and clarifying what I'm actually interested in what's already there in the field and so on and uh we had been on this university retreat 
where uh, different people from the chair come and they write different contributions and you comment on all of the contributions and uh, we did that and some people commented or helped to make me see that my second topic like about divorce can very much like be integrated in the topic about intercultural relationships or intermarriage because it uh, fits into there like there will be divorces too and it would be strange to only talk about marriages and uh, yeah there were many interesting comments in the retreat and I will talk about them more yeah in the next episode then at the very end I have one other thing uh, before I left I went shopping again with two friends and they're like on a market and we went to buy earrings and clothes and all of that and I have one friend she's like an amazing bargainer like I I don't even know what to say I always feel like she is telling the shopkeeper the price it's not the other way around she tells him what she's paying and how much this is worth and they just simply obey in awe <laughs> or at least that's how it feels to me and I've always been so impressed and somehow also fasc fascinated by her bargaining skills by the bargaining skills of people in general of course because uh it's something which we don't really don't need at all, I would say, and where I come from. And that's why it's a skill which I haven't really managed to acquire yet. And like seeing seeing that and trying to learn it, I really find it interesting. And uh, yeah, at that time, also that friend told me and another friend, like when she saw us bargaining and we were not exactly good at it. Yeah, she gave us some tips like what you need to do to bargain successfully and then I felt like I yeah I want to share this little talk about bargaining with you and uh, yeah one of the questions I asked her was like uh, where did you learn bargaining like how did you learn it I'm guessing it was always there in your life for some reason but uh, how did you get so good at it I actually learned it from my mama <laughs> I think that's how I would define that I think my mother because she's so good at it and I've tagged along since forever shopping with her so yeah I learned it from her and she just used to do the exact same thing and I just replicated that and I think practice is how I've gotten so good at it and also knowing the mindset of these shopkeepers because I've lived in Delhi all my life I know how these people work I know the margins that these shopkeepers have so yeah that kind of gives you an idea of how much you can haggle. I think it's an acquired skill, especially being an Indian and having the opportunity to have these smaller markets, to have these kiosks, vendors or shopkeepers who are actually willing to even allow you to bargain and not really having a fixed retail price uh, gives you that opportunity or that window to bargain. And I think it's quite an inherent thing in the Indian culture to kind of get the best deal. Uh, we are not called the country of Jagad just like that, right? So I think it's just an extension of that whole Jagad mindset that we have of being economical, of having that saving mentality. Yeah, interesting that she uses that word Jagad, which is one of my most favorite Hindi words. And although I've read a couple of texts about it, also academic texts, I find it very hard to find a good translation in English or German, which really fits the spirit of Jugar. I would say it means something like, let's say if some object bre breaks and you fix it with a tape and it's it's like not exactly an amazing solution, but you still can like cheat your way through and it works, then this will be Jugar. 
But also if you, I don't know, there is a police officer or whatever, or a clerk or whatever, and you need something and you manage to strike a deal with this person or you manage to, yeah, maybe pay that person a little bit or whatever, this is also true God. It's kind of, you're not exactly cheating your way through, but finding alternative ways, finding mostly creative solutions for things a bit outside of the norm, of the rule, of the law, of whatever. So more or less, this is Chugar and it's very much, I think I encounter it a lot in my Indian life and also try to learn it. And it's also when something happens, sometimes people ask, yeah, but isn't there any Chugar here we can do? <laughs> yeah, I love the word and I'm still completely trying to find out what exactly it means, how exactly to Yeah, to make it a way of life of mine as well, if one can even say it's a way of life, I don't know. But uh, that's what she's talking about there. And uh, then I asked her if she could give us some advice about uh, yeah, how we could get better at bargaining. My advice on how to bargain or how to be good at it is you have to be supremely confident. You know, it's like a thin line between, you know, between overconfidence and underconfidence just like driving but you have to be like confident and you do not have to show the shopkeeper uh, that you are too interested okay you have to have that reserve you have to have that poker it's it's quite like poker actually don't give away your real feelings or like you know you might see something and you might just really really like it and you want it and the moment you show that it's like you're showing your deck of cards and that person will obviously not budge because he knows how much you want it so you have to have the reserve you have to have that poker face you have to have that i mean you should be in control and uh, so if it's say for about 500 rupees and if you want to quote 250 rupees you just quote it with all the confidence not really showing the other person that you're super interested or you really really like it and then just try and walk up walk away and if that And trust me, like 99% of the of the time, the shopkeeper will call you back and he'll probably say, no, I'll give it to you for 350, 250 is too less. And then you have to haggle a bit more. And trust me, he will come down to 250. I've done it so many times and it probably just always works. Yeah, so let's see if I can incorporate that in the future. And I really would like to learn more of the bargaining and let's see if I'll get better at it. Mm. 